Moto America fans, it's time for another episode of Off Track with Carruthers and Bice. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you may even learn something from this unlikely pair and their special guest. The mic is yours, Paul and Sean. Good afternoon, morning, evening, whatever time it is where you're listening to this. This is uh, Off Track, Moto America's weekly podcast, and I'm Paul Carruthers. And I'm joined by my cohort, Sean Bice, who's a few thousand miles away, but it'll sound like he's right here next to me. Um, I kind of wish he was. I'd give him a little hug. I do, but, too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. So, um, Sean, welcome to, uh, welcome to the podcast. How, how are you today? Thanks, Paul. Yeah, the last couple we've done have been video, so I'm kind of glad to be back on the audio only because I have a face for audio, but not for video. So that's all good. Yeah, um, I was going to mention that, but now that you did, um, I, I, I kind of enjoy the video ones. I think, I think there's a lot of people out there that like to, you know, have a face with the, uh, with the voice, even if it's your face, you know? Yeah, I think especially because that last one, I mean, having John Kosinski on, you know, people haven't seen him in so long and remember him, you know, from his days. So it was, it was good in that case to be able to get him on and talk. And that was, that was quite a compelling podcast for us and i'm sure the one we're doing today will be the same yeah i thought uh it was it, i thought it was a pretty good deal getting john on there and it's amazing to me he looks uh he, he looks almost exactly the same as he did and you know he said his he wears the same size leathers and and everything so uh no he's taking good care of himself as you would expect with uh with somebody like him and mm-hmm. now we're just waiting to uh to get rolling at uh, at sonoma it already it already seems like a long time and we still have a couple of weeks but the Sonoma event is going to be a good one for us. It's uh, it's obviously in a beautiful part of the country, and the weather's always nice. It'll be a little warm, but uh, the, the hotter the better, they say. And uh, we've got some things going on there that's quite different. In addition to just all of our racing, which this year has been, I don't think we've had a better season as far as the, the closeness of the racing across all the classes. And all the championships are still up in the air, so it's, you know, the the, the excitement continues to build there. With Sonoma, we've got a few things that are kind of interesting. We've partnered up with Rever, which I don't know if you know what that is, but it's kind of um, I relate it to to the to Strava, which I yeah. use for my run, my running and, and bicycling, where it's kind of a community thing where you're you can go on there and find routes, uh, different routes to go different places on your motorcycle. You can hook up with other people. You can your friends know what you're doing and you know what they're doing. So it's kind of a it's kind of a definitely a Strava type instrument and. We've partnered with them, and they're gonna—they're putting together a bunch of different rides. You know, depending on where you're coming from, you can partake in these rides, and they—you get the ra- the routes right on their app, and you know you can hook up with other people. And they're also going to be doing rides from the track. So um, it's just—it's just a different—it's just a way of getting more people to the event. And and I think motorcyclists like to to be together, and they like to look at other people's motorcycles. And we've also got. Um, We've got some other things like uh, kind of a, a motorcycle swap meet, and we've got this um, this uh, floats and needles, which is kind of cool. It's it's also a ride, but it's for uh, 1989 or older motorcycles. I think they're hoping to get some two strokes out there, which would be kind of cool. That'd and they're going to do a ri- they're going to do a ride on Saturday, like a a 50 miler um, through the wine country up there, and then that's going to end with a with a sh- with a show. And, uh, you know, 
people will be able to uh, they'll get their bikes judged and and there'll be winners and losers. So it'll be kind of fun. Yeah, that moto swap will be cool too. I mean, it's great that it's. Yeah, I guess from what I understand, it's not really necessarily a swap meet with parts and stuff, but it's more if you want to sell your bike, bring it down there and people can look at it and buy it. That's that's what that nature of that is, right, Paul? Yeah, that's exactly yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll be I'll be tempted. I'm sure that uh, I won't be able to put one in my carry-on, so I'll have to figure something out if I find something I really want to buy, but I'm always looking at bikes, so that's fun. I think you should ride one of yours all the way out. There you go. Yeah. Um, hey, one other question real quick. I know this is a two-day event, um, and boy, we go crazy on those. All the riders do, the teams we do in terms of getting everything in. Um, and I'm trying to remember, when we have these two-day events, do we have Super Pole for the Super Bikes? Oh, we didn't oh, at um, Utah. Okay. So that, that's actually a good question because I don't know. I need to check with race operations on that. Okay, I didn't mean to stump you on that, but I was just thinking about it and thinking, man, I don't know if they'll fit that in too, but we'll see. I'm not that easy to stump or that hard to stump on it. <laughs> I'd go with the first one. <laughs> yeah. So what what do you got? I, you usually have a good story for me. Yeah, so it's funny. Last weekend, um, we went back to my home state of New York because my nephew got married. Um, he's from the Rochester area, so near Kyle Wyman, um, knows the dealership that Kyle's family has, but doesn't know Kyle personally. But anyway, we went up to Auburn, New York, and um, that's on Owasco Lake, which is one of the Finger Lakes that's up in that area, kind of central, central part of New York. And one of the things I didn't really know about that town, one of the things they have is uh, the Auburn Correctional Facility, which apparently is world famous for it's uh, the prison reform that it had back in the 1800s. They literally are the ones that originated those prison uniforms with the stripes on them. Um, and the guys being in a chain gang, it was kind of a, they called it the, the Auburn uh, method. But it's, it was like the most cruel and not really punishing, but they, the guys couldn't speak to each other. They had to wear those striped uniforms. They had to like walk in single file and everything. So I didn't know that about that area of, of Auburn, but... The other thing I didn't realize is that's where um, William Seward uh, is from. And for people that are history buffs, they might remember William Seward. I didn't know what office he held. I actually wasn't sure if he was a president and didn't think he was. But anyway, he was uh, Secretary of State under uh, Lincoln during the Civil War. But the thing he's mostly known for is a thing called Seward's Folly, which, um, do you, Paul, you were, you're good in American history, I think, being an Australian. Uh, do you, do you know what Seward's, do you know what Seward's Folly was? I have no freaking idea what you're talking about. <laughs> well, Seward's Folly, believe it or not, was what they called this, the Alaska Purchase. So, in the 1800s, the Russians owned where Alaska was, and they decided they wanted to sell it because they didn't really have many people living up in that area because, you know, it's Alaska. So they talked uh, William Seward into talking the government into buying it. And it's so the, the U.S. bought 586,412 square miles of land uh, for the cost of $7.2 million dollars back in, I think, 1867. So that's roughly $109 million today. Um, so they bought what became Alaska. And the weird thing is it was purchased in 1867 and it didn't become a state until 1959, which it's weird that it took that long. But being that we're talking about William Seward purchasing this land and the idea of purchasing land, we come upon Mr. Jeff May 
from Sugar Hill, Georgia, who right now is on our podcast and right now is going to be talking to us from Alaska. He works as a mortgage banker for Ameris Bank, as well as racing in our Stock 1000 class. And I couldn't believe it when I got in touch with him and heard that he was on a plane going to Alaska. So I wonder if he's getting involved in some kind of Alaska purchase like what William Seward did back in the late 1800s. But um, let's let's bring Jeff in and uh, and find out. Jeff, uh, welcome from Alaska. You are actually an hour behind uh, even California, and I think you're five hours difference different than I am here in Ohio. So uh, welcome welcome to the podcast. Off track with Crothers and Bice. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's pretty cool to be uh, doing this all the way up in Alaska. <laughs> this is pretty good. We we had Hayden Gillum from Kenya. Now we've got you from Alaska. So. Well, you know, we're road racers. We like to travel, you know. It's, that's, that's part yeah, of being a racer, you know. You like going and seeing the world. And if you weren't tired before the call, I bet you're tired after listening to Sean's opening story. That, <laughs> shit, that shit wore me out. That was a, that was a doozy, man. <laughs> I, I don't know how I put together going to a wedding in Auburn with you being in Alaska, but I managed to do it, Jeff. So, you know, you did, you did pull you know, that off, man. Congrats yeah. on that. But you didn't, well, you didn't tell us how much they paid per acre for Alaska. Oh, I can't do the math. Are you able to, t- are you able to figure that out? Uh, I probably could, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't feel like it right now. <laughs> It's so, it's probably it's about the same cost that you could get a nice place out here in Newport Beach. <laughs> yeah. So so is is there an Ameris Bank uh, presence in Alaska? No, there's not. This is a strictly family vacation. Uh, my dad put this together, and uh, it's a cool thing because it's three generations of maize up here in Alaska. We're doing a salmon fishing trip and hanging out with our wives and just. Good, good way to decompress in this little summer break we get. So it's, wow, that's uh, terrific. Yeah, I like I like the schedule where uh, you know we get this break after Laguna before we show up to Sonoma. It's nice to just kind of regroup and get dialed back in for the rest of the season. Now, for a guy that's in Georgia, though, is it kind of weird for you to have to go out there? And then, do you wish in some way that you were able to stay out there instead of having to go back all the way home and then go back out again? I know there's a lot of time in between, but it's kind of weird that we have two West Coast rounds that are not close enough together to go from one to the other. Uh, man, I'm I'm so used to traveling now, being that this is my 20th season in a row racing, that I, I don't feel right when I'm not traveling, to be honest. So I really enjoy, you know, the flying and it, it can get old and it can wear on you when it's too much too often but these days i uh i really appreciate being able to compete in the sport and travel and just continue the lifestyle that uh i've had for so long tell us a little bit about this mortgage broker by day racer by weekend lifestyle that you live is i mean obviously there there's 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 a lot more time put into the to the mortgage broker part than there is the racer part and you're fortunate to have the talent to just be able to do the racing and and keep on top of it with with the amount that you do but the, in, in your life right now the mortgage part is probably is, is, am i correct in thinking that's probably more important to you uh yeah i mean that's that's the next step that's how i pay my bills that's how i put food on the table um you know my wife and i've been married 15 years and had a long career racing and my son's seven, he just turned seven. So there has to be life after racing. And, you know, I think it's always interesting, the stories you hear, you know, guys like Kaczynski or Chandler, 
the guys that did it, you know, in the heyday and were big names and where they go and what happens next. And I think uh, it's very important for the guys right now. And I know it's not on the radar. And it actually pissed me off when somebody told me when I was racing for the National Guard, I needed to be thinking about the next step and what I was going to be doing because I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to be racing forever. What are you talking about? This is this is all I'm ever going to do. But that's that's not the case. I mean, as we've seen with all racers, there's going to be an end, whether by choice or by circumstances out of your control. And it's a hard sport. So I, I really hope guys like Cam and JD and the guys that are at the front are kind of thinking, you know, down the road while they're still in the moment just so when it falls apart, they don't find themselves in trouble. Because um, life was really bad for me uh, after World Superbike. It was an abrupt stop, Moto America just taking over. Um, the series was new. There were no rides to be found. And, you know, it was just all of a sudden a shock to be like, it's over. And so I was lost for about six months. I quit racing, didn't know what I was going to do. And my best friend was a mortgage broker. So... And he was the guy I'd always hang out with after racing was over just to decompress and not talk about racing and all this. And so he, he urged me to go get my mortgage license. He said, look, man, you're a smart guy. You know, you're real analytical. Go get your mortgage license. I'll put you to work. And uh, so that's what I did. I got my mortgage license and started doing mortgages and helping people out and just using the same mindset I used at EBR as a development writer. Uh, to help people because every mortgage is different and everybody's needs are different. So I try to attack it in that manner, just from an analytical standpoint, instead of a sales standpoint, which a lot of guys in my industry are very used car salesman-ish, which I can't stand and uh, just go off the sheer numbers. So it was kind of a, a, an interesting road that, that got me to where I am. Well, Jeff, you talked about kind of the abrupt, uh, well, you're continuing your career now in racing, but it was kind of an abrupt uh, end with uh, EBR um, when you were racing in World Superbike. And, you know, I, I don't, I think I've talked to you before about this. You didn't expect it to be that way. In fact, I think you felt like you were going to probably hang on and do some things with EBR from maybe a brand ambassador point of view as the brand continued. But can you talk about what your expectation was there and, and kind of what happened with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Eric and I were very close friends and that was the plan was, I mean, I even thought at some point I'd probably moved to Wisconsin to continue on with the brand. And, um, I had a lot of blood, sweat and tears in that bike and just really trying to develop and make an American made motorcycle that can compete at the front, which I feel like we did. Um, but because of some bad business dealings and just, you know, kind of honestly a hostile takeover, what happened with the hero uh that caused the brand to go under the brand's demise and even after that i came back and i was you know i was still you know at a decent age come back from world superbike i was still i was 34 at the time and i felt mm -hmm. like i was at my absolute peak of fitness and knowledge and everything was right where it needed to be in the window to be competitive at the front and when i didn't have anything i at the last second i threw together a program i built the bike in my garage myself i bought a r6 from a auction it was a total r6 2010 built it in my garage had a local known engine builder build the bike or build the engine and tune it for me i went to daytona and led every single session put it on pole and damn near won the race yep and that was right. that was kind of a, a statement in my mind as a racer of like how good i am 
I hadn't ridden a 600 in 10 years and I'd never ridden an R6 and to be able to pull that off with up against guys like Josh Aaron and Danny Eslick, I thought, you know, that that had to make a statement, right? I'm back in it. I'm going to have a ride. And it didn't happen. And that was the writing on the wall for me. Like the industry is in a weird spot. It doesn't matter how good you are. It's not about how good you are. You're not going to get a ride. Racing as you know it is over. So, you know, and we've we've come a long way since then, which which has brought me back into the sport where I am now. So every race is a gift. That's that's my mindset. Every time I show up, it's like, man, this may be the last time I race. I'm just going to enjoy it for what it is. So it's a pretty cool thing to be just free as a racer to race what you want, when you want, where you want, and not be bound by any politics. You know, Jeff, I've got a quick analogy for you and, and for Paul as well. Um, you know, I've always enjoyed playing tennis. I haven't played in a while, but I, I used to play a little bit in, in co college and a guy in my hall was on the tennis team for school and uh, my college and he was heck, a heck of a lot better than me. And I used to go and play tennis with him and I'd basically stand way behind the baseline because he could blast the ball pretty hard. And I would I would sit there and, you know, um, hit it back and forth with him. We didn't really play as much as we volleyed, but I realized I was a lot better as a tennis player when I played against him because he was so much better than me. So the reason I mentioned this analogy is I want to address the elephant in the room, which you you, were, you talked about this a little bit at Road America when you won one of the two stock 1000 races there and you're racing in that series this year. I heard from, through the grapevine a little bit, some of the riders are like, Jeff May's a world superbike rider. What's he, what's he doing racing in our series now? And my, my counter to them has always been, well, he's a talented rider. So, you know, if you, if you want to do well and show yourself, you're going you're gonna to have to beat him if you're that worried about it. I, I guess I don't understand why people grouse about it as much as they should think that the challenge is there and, you know, I'm going to accept it. And if I can beat that guy, then, then I'm doing pretty well. What, I, know, I know you kind of tell us about that a little bit. You know, I think that's part of the participation trophy mentality that we live in in this day and age. Like everybody feels like they deserve to win or they deserve to be where they're at. And then with me coming in, it spoils it. Um, but as far as racing goes, it's the same as it's ever been. You know, I, one thing I got to say to the guys that are stepping up like Andrew Lee and, you know, Stefano Mesa, those, you know, those those guys and, and even Wyman, you know, those are the guys that are going to be the next guys. and it is up making them up their game just in the same way that, you know, I earned a, a whole career basically because of Ben Spees. Not a lot of people realize that, but I used to have to race Ben every weekend. And right. I had to rise to the occasion. Here I was on M4, you know, pretty young in the sport and I had a shot, you know, it was an opportunity and I never beat him, but there were races where I'd beat him for, you know, 90% of the race and he'd always end up getting me at the line or something or, blow me away but it made me such a better racer and honestly made me as good as i am today racing ben spees no i'm not ben spees or anything like that but it gave me a career in this industry and made me a lot of money so you know that's what i say to them is you know those guys have a long time to go they're young and you know learn as much as you can it you need that competition to make you dig deeper than you've ever dug before to find that next level inside you Otherwise, you're not going to get there. I mean, there was a big time gap between what the stock guys were doing and what the superbike guys were doing, which there's not that huge difference in the technology. And to me, when some people said, look, this class is a feeder series of superbike, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. 
you know, a lot of these guys are three seconds, four seconds off. There's no feeding that class with that kind of time gap. They'll never be able to race Superbike or get the next ride. Then you need to be within one and a half seconds to maybe two at a maximum. So, and now if you look at the times from Laguna, we're a lot closer. So it's, um, I think it's a very good thing, you know, and, and for me, I, I don't really care. People can say whatever they want. I'm having fun. You know, I earned my place in this industry, in this sport, and I'm going to enjoy it, you know, and represent my sponsors well. And, um, I, I'm here to help people. I'm an open book. I'm not going to, I'm not trying to ruin anybody's day or anything like that. I'm just trying to have fun. When you looking back at what we've done so far this year, is it, and you coming into that class, is it, is it been more difficult or easier or about what you thought it would be coming in as far as the level of competition? Um, you know, I'd, I'd kind of studied it a little bit or I'm always paying attention to what's going on. And I thought, uh, it Road America panned out exactly how I thought it would, but I was surprised at Miller and surprised again at, uh, Laguna Seca that I wasn't able to just run away with it. Um, so that was, a, that was a little bit of a surprise. I mean, I knew I'd be in it, but you've got guys with Andrew Lee and, you know, I mean, they have very good programs with good support with, you know, with what they have and they're learning. That's the, the one thing I've seen out of those guys is their ability to learn, which I knew if I show them something, which I've seen it happen before, if they see what I'm doing, they're able to replicate it and then they go faster. And that's a mark of a good racer is the ones that are able to adapt on the fly and figure it out in whatever scenario. Those are the guys that turn into champions down the road. You know, Jeff, I want to ask you a little bit about your career. Um, Paul, Paul knows me, knows this of me and kids me a lot that you're, you've always been one of my favorite writers. And I think one of them is because you're kind of an open book and you're approachable and easy to talk to. And, you know, I've always appreciated that. You know, you turned pro back in 2000 and had a, you've had a long and very successful career. But, but I want to talk about that um, from kind of this open book idea. Um, you know, looking at your career, you, you've led a lot of laps, had a lot of top tens, top fives, a lot of podiums. But if I'm not mistaken, I think it was 2008, you, you had two wins. You finished second in the championship that, was, that year. That was kind of the closest you ever got to winning a championship. But, you know, you've been a fierce competitor your entire career. When, what's your mindset? And I'm not even talking about now because, you know, you've won a race this year. But during your career, was your mindset always, no matter no matter what team you're on, what bike you're on, was your mindset always, I'm going to go out there to win the race? Or did you did you have more realistic expectations, you know, being that you didn't actually win a lot of races and that's not a detriment to you? But, you know, tell, tell us about what you thought about during your career when you were riding. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think I, for, for me, it was very intimidating getting into the pro racing ranks. Um, because I, I was late bloomer. I didn't start racing until I was 19. And I'd never ridden a street bike until six months earlier. And then I went and took Freddie Spencer school and was like, yep, this is what I'm doing with my life. I just graduated high school and I went all in on it and really didn't have any plans of doing anything else. So when I found myself three to four years later into the sport, racing against the likes of the, you know, Tommy and, and Raj Hayden and, um, the Bostroms and, you know, the names at the time, I was just, you know, kind of awestruck. 
be honest a little bit. And it's like, I'm not supposed to be here. You know, these guys have been racing <laughs> their whole lives. They got families that are into racing. And here I am with a van and whatever I can scrounge up showing up to the races. It's like, this, this isn't supposed to be this way. Um, so I think that maybe set my expectations early on that in some way, maybe I felt like I didn't belong, but I was there. And so I think I've always looked at it as I just want to be in the race for the win. I don't care if I actually win. I just want to be in the race to win. And then I also had a, a glimpse at the nasty side of our sport early on. And my first year with my, I'd call it, you know, semi-factory ride when I was riding for John Ulrich in 05, first big paycheck, big bonuses, you know, I'd made it right. Like I'm in the club now, I'm on a big team, got the salary and got the team and the bike to do it. And here a couple rounds in, my teammate gets paralyzed and uh, Vincent Haskovic. And then I was like, whoa, whoa, you know, if this can happen to him, it can happen to me or anybody. Because for a while there, we felt invincible because we hadn't had a top level pro racer with any kind of, you know, death or serious injury. And that was a big eye opener for me, you know, and I was like, you know, I, d I just want to be here. I'm looking for longevity in the sport. And I realized early on, it's like, if I got to go two tenths a lap slower, not wreck the bike and take a third versus winning. That's way better every single day of the week than winning races, being this this flash in the pan star and then career over, you know, because mm -hmm. at the at the heart of it, I truly love riding motorcycles. I've ridden since I was four years old and that's all I ever really wanted to do is just ride. Well, if you turn yourself into a vegetable or worse, you know, you're you're not going to be able to ride anymore. It's over. So it was never for fame or stardom. In my case, it was more the fact that. I took pride in earning my living racing motorcycles and everything I owned, I earned from racing. So I guess that's the heart of it. Yeah. And I mean, you parlayed that into some pretty amazing rides. You mentioned racing for M M4M Go Suzuki in 05 for John Ulrich, but you know, you raced with, you had Michael Jordan as your team owner for a while. That's prestigious. You went on and raced world Superbikes, So you know, you, you were, you had a part in a lot of successful operations and man, to, to be part of MJ's team and everything that that's, that was pretty amazing. That had to be like a, a pretty amazing time period for you, wasn't it? Yeah, I got you. So the whole reason I went to Jordan was to inevitably end up at Yoshimura, but at the end of 2008, maybe early beginning of 2009, the, the housing crash had started. DMG bought the series. And at the time, DMG was promising all these NASCAR sponsors and, you know, bringing in their affiliates. And, and that's what it looked like with the National Guard. I'm like thinking, man, this is, this is really going to take off. And outside industry sponsorship is the way to go. You know, the writings on the wall, Suzuki was kind of pulling back at the time a little bit. You know, everybody was worried about the stock market crash and impending housing market doom that was happening. So, um, and we were experiencing a little bit of a lag, I think, more than other people because, you know, a lot of contracts are already in place in motorcycle racing, even though things are going badly. So we didn't really see it till later on. So I chose the National Guard deal and went that route. And then so that that kind of turned the tables. And also in that time period, Yamaha called me and offered me uh, the Superbike ride on their new Yamaha. 
but I was still under contract with Suzuki, and Suzuki had first rider refusal, and Yamaha at the time wasn't willing to spend what Suzuki was paying to get me. So that was another kind of pivotal point in my career where there could have been a lot of what-ifs and a lot of things were looking very promising and bright, but for no other reason than just the circumstances of the time, it didn't happen. And at the end of 2009, I found myself out of a ride and going into 2010 with nothing. And, um, you know, this is a good lesson for a lot of people, too, to, to never burn any bridges. But I got a phone call from John Ulrich, who was, you know, my boss for three years. And he said, hey, there's, you know, Eric Buell, you know, have you heard of Buell Motorcycles? And I said, yeah, yeah, I've heard of them, but I don't really know much about them. And I said, well, he's developing an American-made superbike. And I threw your name in the hat because he called and asked, you know, who's, who's the guy that's the best, you know, development rider that I know of? And he's like, I, I recommended you. And, you know, nothing really happened for about three months. And then after the season started, I got a call from Eric and he told me what the project was all about. And, you know, at the time I was like, man, I'm all about it. This is great. I got nothing. This, this is awesome. And then that launched another five-year kind of version 2.0 of my career where I really learned about developing motorcycles and feedback and, you know, what changes do what. If you change the rake, the offset, uh, if you change linkage ratios, swing arm angle, all these different things, how to adjust a motorcycle, swing arm stiffness, lots of things that were a whole nother level for me, or a whole nother skill set. So it was it was an interesting, I guess, series of events that led to my career being what it was. But I, I think the key point that, you know, any of the younger guys should take note is that a lot of these things were just they weren't my doing. I mean, yes, they were in a sense that you know, I did well and I had good results and people thought highly of me, but I was presented with opportunities and I was able to capitalize on them. The tough thing about our sport right now is there's really not many opportunities. That's, that's the hard thing. We have a lot of talent, even more, I believe, than other people see, you know, especially outside the USA. We have some seriously fast, talented riders. Um, if they were given the opportunities, I guarantee they would be able to capitalize on them. How close was that bike, um, and I'm talking about the EBR, how close was that bike to actually getting to the point where you wanted it to be? It was very close. Um, I think that w we were missing a few things on the side of the power of it. Um, and it, it all had to do with uh, air. The, the engine couldn't get enough air, and the longer the straightaway was, the the more it would run out of air per se. And the thing was great. Second and third gear, it was as fast as anything out there. But as you subsequently grabbed a gear shift, it kind of keep kind of slowing down. So it had to do with the airbox design, I believe, and the airbox capacity, and then also how the air was funneled into it. But it, by the end of it, in World Superbike, the thing made 197 horsepower to the tire and upwards of the high 90s in torque so it was it was a strong bike it just unfortunately against the world superbike was nowhere close in power and all those tracks over there were so so big compared to what we see here um and it, it the bike just didn't suit that it's it's a it's one of the most amazing handling motorcycles i've ever ridden uh it's it's hard to describe it's definitely the most fun but it handles like an R6, but you have power of a superbike. 
And you'd see that at the end of 2013, before we left that, you know, we were regularly challenging the factories, you know, Yamaha and Yoshimura, we were up there fighting for the podium with this bike. So I think that's a true testament to, you know, a very small group of amazingly talented engineers and passionate people, you know, what can be accomplished. When you talk to Eric, when you talk to Eric and you went, went with him, um on this venture how far into the project did you know or get an inkling that you were going to be eventually going to world superbike was it something that all of a sudden came up that you know a year before that or did you know early on that that was his plan where was that at we didn't really broach that topic until um you know later on uh 2010 it was it was touch and go. I mean, there were times where he'd call me and be like, Jeff, I man, I I don't know if we can go to VIR. I don't, I don't know if we should. I don't know if we can afford it. You know, what do what do you think? Because the funds were extremely limited at the time. It was solely Eric. You know, putting his funding and his money into this with some small sponsors. You know, it kind of mirrored you know what Kyle Wyman's doing in a way, right? Like he's got some people behind him, a small little tight knit crew. And that's what it resembled at the time. It didn't take off until he landed Amsoil as a title sponsor for 2011, which really helped us do more. And then again, with the release of the 1190RS time that year, which allowed us to get away from the 1125, which you know it had a substantial amount more power. That was the new bike. And then when Hero came on board and they got a lot of outside investor money, that's when things really took off. And then that's when we started talking about World Superbike around 2012. So, you know, that was three years into the project. And the main reason was for them, which they ended up, they were the ones that killed the whole thing. But for them as an international company, spending all this money on EBR um, from a development side for their company, for Hero, and then from a sponsorship side for us, it didn't make much sense for them to be racing here in the United States where they weren't even able to get rights to the footage to to use worldwide to promote what they were doing here. So they saw it wasting money. They wanted to be involved with Moto3 to go up against the likes of Mahindra and KTM, which are their biggest competitors globally. And so Eric was able to negotiate a deal to put us in World Superbike to kind of be the best compromise for everybody involved. And unfortunately, I think it, you know, it was a, it was a situation of a, you know, a day late and a buck short kind of thing. When we entered that venue, we just didn't have uh, machinery that was on par with our competitors. Did you enjoy getting to ride over there and all those different racetracks and stuff? I mean, as a racer, that's got to be something that you probably uh, look back at and, and that was a good opportunity for you to, to expand some of your stuff. Yeah, you know, it 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 was tough. I mean, Paul, I I guess I think Jake Gagne could probably, um, you know, relate to me in this a little bit. And I know Aaron and I were the same over there. It was it was, it was very polarizing. It was the coolest things we'd ever experienced and done in our life. Also coupled with the worst, because as a racer, you kind of live and die by your results, especially you know when you're getting paid good money to do it, and there's high expectations and lots of politics around it. Your job is to show up and get the job done, period. And when you know it in your mind that you don't have what it takes, uh, it's tough. And we were suffering some some engine problems that year. We had some suppliers that were giving us some bad 
some bad things because uh, that's when they went to the mass production model 1190RX and we were having these things were chucking rods through the front of the cylinders and there were times at Aaron I thought we were like man this thing's gonna kill us it's absolutely mm. gonna this bike is gonna kill us we're gonna we're gonna die doing this and then you'd suck it up and you'd go train hard for two weeks and get revitalized and be like yes I'm going to Magna Cour. this is gonna be so awesome we're gonna see France <laughs> we're gonna go race these these world level tracks that are amazing and uh you know and then it, you'd go out and free practice one and then get deflated instantly and then you'd have mm -hmm. to like soldier through the weekend and do the best you could so um it was an amazing experience looking back on it a lot of the not so fun stuff has been forgotten and i have a lot of just some of the best memories and best friends i've made in my life racing a world superbike and it was an amazing opportunity and experience and and I got to say, too, that paddock is so friendly. I, I couldn't believe it coming out of, you know, growing up through AMA Superbike with the guys that were there. I mean, there was so much money here. It was it was not a friendly environment. But then to go over there and meet the likes of Johnny Ray and Leon Haslam and Tom Sykes and Jazz Davies and hang out, you know, see him again. This, those guys are so cool. It was unbelievable. I, I was blown away because Johnny Ray and Leon Haslam were teammates that year um on the pot of honda in you know, tenkata and here they are hanging out at night talking about who's going to go get pizza for their families and they're just hanging out like buddies and i'm like what what <laughs> is going on you guys are supposed to be arch enemies this is your teammate it's the first guy you got to beat what are you doing hanging out together so it was uh it, that was an interesting thing too just to see racing at a very high level with a different perspective and i feel like our paddock's like that now too it's a it's a it's a much friendlier place, and everybody's very appreciative of what they have. Yeah, I wanted to ask you. I I need to go back to something that you said earlier, Jeff. Um, you made me speechless twice during this podcast already. The first time was when you mentioned that you were in line for Ben Spee's uh, job on the Yosh team. I never knew that, and the the other thing I didn't know. You, I have to ask you about this again. So going back to around two thousand nine. You you had an opportunity, or you were close to racing for Yamaha, and that was when they went with Josh Hayes. How did that whole thing happen? Because I kind of equate your career similar to Hayes's. You guys were both journeymen early on, and it's interesting that you know he ended up getting that ride, but you were you were a candidate as well, which I never knew until you said that. What tell tell us about how that all came about? Uh, it was. It was strange, like the end of 2008, um, Suzuki was very good to me, you know, and, and I'd had a good year, you know, got a couple poles and some wins and was consistently on the podium. And, you know, the Suzuki started talking to me come around July and they're like, you know, look, look, we want, we want you to, you know, keep you on board. You know, we can give you a bigger raise and we can bump your bonuses and, you know, life is good. And then I remember around, uh, you know, second race to the end. I think it was Road Atlanta when I won. It was this, you know, one race to go. I think we finished at Laguna that year. But they're like, look, we can't raise your salary, but, you know, we can probably bump your bonuses. And then we get to Laguna. I was like, ah, we can't do either of those. We can just keep things the way they are. And then when we go into the off season and we still weren't signed, you know, everything was kind of in turmoil. And things were getting weird with everybody at that point. And um, everybody knew Ben was leaving. A lot of talk about Blake Young getting the ride at Yosh. 
and the whole DMG thing happening. And I got a phone call in, I want to say it was in October from Suzuki. And they said, hey, we're sorry, got bad news. Um, look, you actually, no, I got a call from Keith McCarty probably about a month earlier. And Keith asked me, you know, hey, do they have first rider refusal? And I said, yes, they do. And he said, okay, well, I got to ask, how much is it? Because I, I need to know if I can even come up with it. And we told him what I was making at the time. And, you know, Keith's response was, well, shit, I, I can't even pay you half that. So that was the death blow for the Yamaha ride right then and there. And then subsequently, I think it was maybe two weeks, maybe a month later, then Suzuki calls and says, hey, uh, anyone but the Yosh riders are 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 now because at the time us the Jordan riders we were we were factory we got paid by Suzuki North America. I don't think a lot of people realize that that we were we were factory right. riders assigned to that team, and uh, they said, look, the only people that are now factory riders are the Yosh riders. Everyone is out. We're cutting support across the board, and so that's the moment in time where we signed the National Guard deal because it made sense and it was a good payday and it was a good team and continuing on with what I had and future looked bright. So it was a, it was kind of a weird bunch of circumstances that all happened in that one time period. But I was bound by Suzuki and bound by first rider refusal and there was no way to get the Yamaha ride. Let's go, let's go back to today and talk about um, obviously the upcoming race in Sonoma that's a place that you have some experience with. Is it a, is it one that you look forward to going to? It was funny, man. My, my wife was talking to me about it and she's like, you know, you go really good there. I was like, wait a minute. I don't, I've had some amazing races there. I thought back to it. I I remember beating Ben Bostrom coming down to the line. I think I got second in that race and Spies won it. We got on the EBR on the box for the first time ever. It's Sonoma. The first time American made bikes ever podium to superbike race i believe and you know i've had a lot of success there but at the same point in time i don't really enjoy the track right it's not one of my favorites as a rider i i tend to really enjoy the road atlantas and road americas the really big fast tracks are always have been my favorite and uh sonoma is so tight and so technical big risk reward there as far as lap time and to go quick there. Um, it's some, it's sketchy in some spots. There are some spots you definitely do not want to crash because it will bite you hard. And so looking at it, I've, yeah, I have good results there, but I don't particularly enjoy it. It's not on the top of my list. <laughs> you know, Jeff, I got to ask you a side question. So a lot of people think a lot of people that know Jody know that she's from Wisconsin, or at least if they spend any time talking to her, kind of figure that out. And I, I always thought you guys met some at Road America or, you know, I've even heard tales that you met her at Siebkins after a race weekend. Tell us how you met Jody, which is not like that at all. Am I right? I mean, <laughs> no, it couldn't be any farther from that. Um, oh, man. No, it was back in 2002. I had had a great year racing uh, Formula USA and at, at the time, which was a pretty good national series. Uh, Michael Barnes was in it, Larry Pegram. Um, a lot of, a lot of, you know, big name guys and big teams were racing for me USA. And I, I, I just made a, to me, it was a bunch of money that year. I mean, I think I made $40,000 in winnings and I was 22 and having a ball and, you know, living the, the bachelor life and 
you know, had this bachelor pad with a couple other dudes and we were partying all the time and racing <laughs> and life was good. And, uh, I went to a ski and snowboard shop in Atlanta and we have a couple there just because of the airport. A lot of people fly out West to go skiing and stuff and they're having a sale. I go in there and, um, Jody was working there. That's how I met her. She was working at the snow <laughs> snowboard ski shop and, um, uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, we ended up starting dating, and first thing I did was took her out to Little Talladega, <laughs> and uh, somebody told her that I raced bikes, and so she thought I was a bicycle racer. She had no idea I was even a motorcycle racer at the time, and so I took her out to the um, the track, and Mike Smith was there. I remember he was testing one of the factory Ducatis. I think it was HMC Ducati was there with him, and uh, you know, I had a wreck, and I told her, I was like, look, you know, you can either deal with this this is what I do. This is where my heart's at. Or you can't because you're not going to change me. <laughs> and we we could just be friends. How about that? And she said, no, I can handle this. I, I like this. This is pretty cool. And she said, the only, the only thing she told me is like, I don't want you riding on the street anymore. And I, so I stopped riding street bikes in 2002. Wow. That, that was, that was our, that was our deal. And uh, we've been together ever since. And she, she was at every single race I ever raced except for one when she was uh, getting ready to give birth to Riley, our son. So there it's, you been go. A, it's been a, a good, uh, <laughs> we've had an amazing marriage, man. It's been a good, good wild ride. If she didn't run for the hills after going to Little Talladega, she's probably a keeper. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I kind of like the fact she didn't know anything about it, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Is it? Isn't she from Fond du Lac, which, I mean, isn't far from Road America, right? She had no, she'll tell you too, yeah, she had no idea that Road America was in her backyard. She knew nothing <laughs> of motorsports whatsoever. <laughs> That's great. No idea Steepkins was there, so no, we didn't meet at Steepkins. <laughs> yeah, I, I, have you ever, have you, has anybody ever asked you that? Have you ever heard that people thought that was true? No, I actually hadn't heard that one. That's That's pretty funny. I've Maybe heard some somebody... funny rumors, but that's <laughs> that's a new one. I seriously heard that from three or four people in a long time ago. So they just didn't have the balls to present it to you, but I, but I do. So I'm going to cut Sean off so that you can go back to fishing and having a good vacation. Because <laughs> otherwise, he'll take his man crush and we'll go all day with this. So um, yeah, I'm going to get in trouble with the family, man. You're taking all the no, time, no, dude. Yeah, you need to go back and have some fun with them. So. Um, I, I really appreciate you joining us this morning. It was, uh, it was a nice chat with you. It's, you've got a long and interesting career and we wish you the best as the season goes forward. I'm, I'm sure you're going to be, uh, you're going to be racing at the front as you have been in all the races so far. So we will see you in a couple of weeks and Sean, thanks again for joining in. Um, everybody, thanks for listening and, uh, you know where to find us obviously because you found us before. So keep listening and we'll keep doing these things and, We'll talk again next week, Sean, and, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks there, Jeff. Yeah, see you guys at the track. All Thanks, right, Jeff. Thank Take care. Bye, Bye guys. Bye.